Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to give a quick thanks to the show's listeners. The period of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era has grown in interest exponentially in the last few years, and I think in part that's due to Julian Fellows' television show, which I understand has been greenlighted for a third season, so hopefully that interest will continue to grow. I've now done 70 episodes of this show, and there are a handful of people that regularly get in contact with me to discuss the show, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. They give me new ideas, they sustain me in the process of producing the shows, and so I just want to give a shout out to one of them this week, Gary McCarthy. You are an avid listener, and I want to thank you for taking the time to tune in every week. Okay, now to the show. Students of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era will have heard of the railroads being compared to an octopus. That's a metaphoric illusion. It was made famous by California author Frank Norris, who in 1901 wrote the novel The Octopus. It was a fictional book that closely resembled the exploits of the Southern Pacific Railroad and its chief architect, Leland Stanford. The book that Norris wrote details the corruption of fictional legislators, the rise and fall of communities, the allure of land, and the changing society and culture of California. Capital and labor naturally feature alongside the landscape of Southern California, and Norris's book inspired many more Gilded Age authors to incorporate place as something that features prominently, as well as, say, socioeconomic forces that in- invisibly move characters to their terminus. There's books like Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence or Willa Cather's O Pioneers, which have an enduring legacy in the world of literature, but the image of the railroads and the era's trusts as a devious octopus is something that has remained ever since Norris's book came out. It's still iconic. And while the octopus in the Midwest may have transported grains and beef and oil, the octopus in California was fed on citrus fruit, among other commodities. The railroads brought oranges and other semi-tropical agriculture to the markets in Chicago and New York. Indeed, the citrus growers had as much to do with the success of the groping Southern Pacific octopus as, say, Chinese laborers who built those lines, or the boosters who called on Easterners to migrate to the Western coast. Today, I'm joined by Professor Benjamin Jenkins, who is an associate professor of history and an archivist at the University of Laverne. 
Ben has worked in public history at institutions such as the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and the Huntington Library, but he's here today to talk about his new book, Octopus's Garden, How Railroads and Citrus Transformed Southern California. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Okay, so I have to first say that I'm incredibly irritated by the title of your book, not because it isn't brilliant, brilliant, but because ever since I saw the title, I can't stop singing the Beatles song. It's like the worst earworm. And I was just wondering, did you know that Octopus's Garden would inflict torture on readers? <laughs> did I know that it would inflict torture? No, I, that certainly wasn't the aim. I, um, I did... I grew up in a Beatles household as opposed to a Stones household, I guess. So definitely Ringo was on my mind when I found out, oh, people used to call the uh, railroad in California the octopus. So it was meant to be a nice homage, but I apologize sincerely if that's been an earworm to any of my readers. It uh, sort of calls to mind the fiasco over Walt Disney's Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf back in the 1920s or early 1930s. Um, when that song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, was going through the press and people would meet Walt Disney on the street and they sort of shake their fist at him like, how could you do this to us? Now it's stuck in our children's heads, it's stuck in our heads. So I apologize for um, creating my very much more microscopic sort of cultural phenomenon with this. Well, it worked. I mean, you, it's a very memorable title, but uh, it is about the railroads, the octopus, of course, the Southern Pacific in in, in particular. And uh, I suppose, what's the history from the early construction to its eventual, like, total expanse? Where does it travel to, and why is the Southern Pacific so important? So that's a great question. As you noted, Southern Pacific was the octopus that a lot of Californians thought was this monopolistic entity that sort of had its tendrils wrapped around the state, its politics, culture, society, and especially the economy. The Southern Pacific was controlled by four gentlemen, appropriately known as the Big Four, or more commonly during their time as the Associates. Uh, they had history building the Central Pacific Railroad, which, as I'm sure most listeners will know, was the western half of the first transcontinental railroad. Uh, they picked up the Southern Pacific, which was a, a small independent railroad in the early 1870s. They invested in it, expanded it greatly, and they turned it into a, a transcontinental route that went from San Francisco down to Los Angeles and then all the way across the West to New Orleans. Um, so for many years, the Southern Pacific really was the only game in town in Southern California. If you wanted to uh, come and go to the outside world, you took the railroad because it was the most you know, available route, unless you wanted to go through the covered wagon uh, journey that so many Americans did earlier, which was not advisable, or unless you wanted to take a steamer up to San Francisco, uh, the railroad was just the only way that you traveled. And it certainly did a lot for Southern California in terms of facilitating population boom, uh, giving rise to um, an agricultural industry that was able to export across the United States rather than just selling locally. Uh, but as the only game in town, the Southern Pacific was able to charge whatever rates they wanted about stuff. Um, like many railroads in the 19th century, they were infamous for short haul, long haul differentials. Uh, they really didn't have that much in the form of competition for <clears throat> about uh, 10 years when a second transcontinental railroad, the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe came into Southern California. Um, and even then, they, these two railroads would often cooperate. They'd reach agreements with each other in order to not undercut profits. Um, except for those times when they did. Railroads are just very sort of multifaceted, multi-faced entities. Um, so that's that's really the history of the Southern Pacific. It really was sort of the capital T, the capital R railroad. 
for a lot of Californians from Los Angeles to San Diego to San Bernardino. Um, it could make entire towns and it could bypass entire towns, which caused them to sort of disappear from the map. Again, a common theme that recurs across the United States that's not unique to California. Um, but it certainly gave the Southern Pacific uh, an enviable financial, political, and economic position uh, in Los Angeles. And the other half of your title is the garden bit. So if the octopus is the railroad, the citrus farmer is the garden, I guess. And so how does that agricultural product rise to prominence in Southern California? So the orange industry here, and really oranges were sort of the bulk of the fruits that were being grown, although grapefruits, lemons, limes were also um, cultivated, really date back to the mission era, all the way back to the 1770s. Uh, when the first Franciscan missionaries, people from uh, Spanish-controlled Mexico, came up to Alta California, started the missions, they brought the first orange seeds and orange trees with them. A lot of these, all of them actually, were grown by Native American laborers under the uh, quote-unquote watchful eyes of the Padres. Uh, there's a whole nasty history there that we can talk about in detail later if we want, but suffice it to say, those are really the first oranges grown here. Uh, when California was part of Mexico for that brief 20 or so year period, um, there were a number of immigrants from the United States, people who were fur trappers or around explorers who settled in Los Angeles and started to grow oranges commercially. Uh, William Wolfskill was a Kentucky fur trapper, for instance, who came to L.A. And by the 1860s, he had an orange grove that was really one of the largest in North America. Um, and that really set the stage for Californians to start growing semi-tropical fruit. California also has a wine industry, so we've been growing grapes ever since the missions came here. So it's, it wasn't a huge leap to go from viticulture to citriculture. But the real explosion came in about the 1870s when the town of Riverside started to cultivate this new type of orange that was called the Washington Naval. Um, originally it came from Brazil through the United States Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C., to Southern California. Um, this fruit's kind of renowned for two reasons. One, it was tastier than what Californians were already growing. And second, it, it's seedless. It actually has within the peel, sort of a small embryo of a second fruit that causes it to sort of bulge outward, which a lot of observers said, hey, that looks like a navel. It looks like a human belly. So we'll call it the navel orange. And we'll add Washington because it sounds nice and patriotic and we want the Southern California to sort of reclaim its reputation as being part of the union because during the Civil War, it was sort of a hotbed for a lot of Confederate activity. So by the 1870s, Riverside started growing this naval orange in very large quantities. Uh, neighboring communities in San Bernardino County, Los Angeles, and San Diego started to copy and plant orange trees on a very large commercial scale. Uh, Southern Los Angeles County broke away to form an, its own independent organization called Orange County, which is famous for being the home of Disneyland today, but Back in the 1880s and later, it was really better known for being the, the birthplace of the Valencia orange industry. Uh, Valencia's ripen in the spring and, or in the early summer, which is later than the Washington naval orange, which comes into bearing usually December or January, depending on what the weather's like. So the citrus industry really was a year-long, year-round phenomenon in Southern California. Depending on what type of orange or lemon you're growing, you can have crops two or three times a year. And so that was really attractive to a lot of people who wanted to start their own uh, citrus ranches, as they would call them. Uh, a lot of orange growers very adamantly said, we're not farmers. You know, we don't scratch at the earth. We're not like those 
maybe down in their luck families who were living out in the Midwest who were being um, just tenant farmers in many cases. Many of the folks who grew oranges in Southern California were wealthy, retired New England gentlemen, and they were able to afford uh, indigenous Chinese or Mexican-American labor to do the actual hard work of planting and cultivating and packing the fruit. Uh, by 1893, which was just 20 years after the Washington Naval Orange first came to Riverside, that town was actually the richest city per capita in the United States, all because of oranges. And so it was really no surprise that communities all across Southern California really wanted to copy the model that Riverside had uh, to take advantage of the climate, of some new developments in irrigation technology to bring water to their oranges, and above all, to exploit the new railroad connections that allowed them to reach markets far away. Uh, early on, orange growers really sold to people up in San Francisco. The California local market was all that they could reach. But after the Southern Pacific came to Southern California, that allowed these orange growers to say, okay, maybe we can start extending outwards a little bit. Um, we can take advantage of these new railroad cars, these refrigerator cars to push all the way out to the Midwest. And as that technology improved, eventually make it to the East Coast. So uh, it was really the railroad that allowed oranges from California to become the dominant force in the American citrus market to overcome Florida, to really create this idea that California is sort of a land kissed by the sun or sun kissed as the big orange organization called itself and still calls itself to this day. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's a great story of the two separate entities in a way. And But I, the confluence happens in your book, too. And you mentioned Riverside is a, a good community to look at. But you also mentioned in the book Redlands as well. And I was wondering if you could say something about how the confluence of the railroad and the 
the boom in orange, the orange business leads to the development of these towns. I mean, Riverside was there before the orange boom, but places like Redlands and maybe other places in California that you could tell us about, they really, they spring out of this confluence. They do. You're absolutely right. The confluence that led to communities like Redlands, um, Laverne, where I teach, which is also a citrus town, really reached a fever pitch in about 1887. By that year, Southern California was in the height of a real estate boom. The two transcontinental railroads that came through here, the Southern Pacific and the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, entered a rate war that year, where they were constantly trying to undercut each other's costs. Um, and at one point, it was said that settlers could get from Kansas City to Southern California, to Los Angeles, for the rate of $1. Obviously, a dollar was a lot more money back then than it is today, but still something that most Americans could have scratched together without too, too much trouble. So that resulted in <clears throat> tens of thousands of people coming out to the Golden State, coming to Southern California, where they would be taken through places like Riverside or Pomona, which was an early adopter of citrus, and it's a pretty large town in eastern Los Angeles County to this day. And so as people came out on the railroad and were buying up land, they decided, well, we're going to grow oranges. You know, we've seen these successful communities. We've heard in the newspaper that California is becoming the orange kingdom. We've read these articles about um, citrus fairs from New Orleans to Louisville to Chicago. So Americans by the 1880s were very mindful of the fact that California was sort of rapidly becoming the citrus capital of America. And so these new settlers would just buy up huge lots of land. They would put together new towns. And I think in 1887, at the height of that railroad rate war, something like 30 new citrus growing towns came into being from Los Angeles to San Bernardino County, mainly along the lines of the Santa Fe Railroad. And a little bit east of, of San Bernardino was the city that you mentioned, Redlands, which I was actually just there a few days ago. I was at their uh, library looking at some historical manuscripts. And it's, it's really the story that I'm telling you now. People wanted to come. They wanted to grow oranges. They wanted to use the money from that to build a large, impressive community. Uh, the people of Redlands paid a pretty large amount of money, a few thousand dollars, to get the Santa Fe to build a station there. And so they were on the main line of the Santa Fe. It took a little longer for them to convince the octopus itself, the Southern Pacific, to come to town. But eventually they were able to accomplish that too. Um, Redlands kind of has this reputation for being sort of a center of affluence within the Orange Empire. I mentioned before that a lot of people who were taking part in Citrus were like retired people from New England, maybe people who came seeking um, cures for tuberculosis or other lung afflictions or health problems, which made Southern California and its sunny environment very popular back in the late 19th century. Um, so a lot of these wealthy people just sort of pooled their money together to uh, open up packing houses, to start orange groves, to convince the railroad to come to town. And Redlands liked to really visibly display the wealth that it got from the citrus industry by building these large, impressive civic structures. Its public library, for instance, is to this day one of the largest and most beautiful in Southern California. Uh, built a large railroad station. Uh, there was an entire neighborhood that was called Smiley Heights or Canyon Crest Park. And it was named after essentially the two guys who really made Redlands, um, Alfred and Albert Smiley. And they really were at the forefront of this effort to push Redlands as being like the richer citrus community than Riverside, sort of a rival to their neighbors to the south. So there was really this friendly competition between a lot of different communities in Southern California to say, we're rich from growing the orange industry, but 
we're richer than this other community that also is taking part in orange and lemon growing. So it was um, very much a result of the fact that there was already money flowing in. There was significant investment even before the oranges started to return profit. In other words, people who were not wealthy to begin with didn't really get rich off of citrus later on. You, you had to have uh, good money to come into it, and it would make you more rich over time. But it wasn't something that, um, say, Midwestern farmers who were tenants maybe would be able to come out into California to easily afford. Yeah, we're, I, I really want to talk about labor because that's a central focus of your book. Before yeah. we do, though, I, I might just ask you a little bit about some of the ancillary, not necessarily industries, but the ancillary sort of technologies and innovations that come out of this confluence of citrus and, and the railroad. So one of the things that I was fascinated in reading your book about was the marketing that went on. And I mean, largely around labeling and promoting citrus, and then also the refrigeration cars and how they came to, you know, extend the reach and, and the, the spread of citrus fruit. So maybe, maybe you could say something about how not just the railroads competing, but the competition for new innovation was leading to uh, an expansion of the citrus industry. Absolutely. Uh, the refrigerator cars that you mentioned are absolutely critical in making the citrus industry go from something that was very locally oriented to uh, transcontinental in scope. <clears throat> uh, the earliest refrigerator cars that were used in Southern California were actually not even full refrigerator cars. They were just ventilated, which allowed fresh air to circulate every now and then. Um, when the first carload of oranges was shipped from Southern California to St. Louis in about 1877, uh, the Southern Pacific had to stop the train periodically throughout the West, throughout the Midwest, to uh, re-ice it to make sure that the um, fruit didn't spoil during transit. But over time, uh, because this process was so onerous originally, the railroad really invested in more advanced refrigeration techniques, uh, better ice production facilities, for instance, um, within Southern California, I think in cities like Pomona, Ontario, and especially the city of Colton, where there was a huge railroad depot, there were also large icing facilities. And that allowed the citrus that was coming out of Southern California to not just reach the Midwest as it was doing before, but to go all the way back east to places like Boston, to <clears throat> New York, obviously to the big commercial centers of America during the Gilded Age and the 20th century. Um, and from there, even shipped transcontinentally by the, or transoceanically, transatlantically over to uh, London, where Queen Victoria supposedly enjoyed a California orange or two. Um, and again, that competition between the two railroads, the Santa Fe and the Southern Pacific, uh, really spurred this effort. They were constantly battling each other to build the best refrigeration technology to upgrade their fleet of what were card, called reefer cars. Although, you know, in 21st century, we see reefer as having sort of a slightly different definition. It meant refrigerator car back in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, the Santa Fe established its refrigerator dispatch to serve Southern California's oranges. The Southern Pacific responded by creating the Pacific Fruit Express. Both of these were large and influential and commercially successful and really made a name for California citrus. But as you indicated, the advertising was equally important in sort of making that name prominent. Um, we can see multiple ways that citrus growers were advertising their product in the late 19th and then into the 20th century. Uh, one way that they did this was through uh, these orange fairs that took place across the United States, first locally in Southern California, but then by the 1880s, um, expanding outwards to places like New Orleans, to Louisville, where different um, national and international expositions brought attention to oranges. 
I'm sure a very large number of listeners to this podcast will be familiar with the World's Columbian Exposition, which took place in Chicago in 1893 as a 400th anniversary celebration of Columbus coming to the New World. And the orange growers took part in that. They built a huge tower made out of California oranges, complete with a Liberty Bell, with a bald eagle at the top of it, trying to say that, you know, this is a patriotic industry. We're here. We're part of the United States. We can lay claim to that sort of American identity in an era when the country was still recovering from the Civil War. Um, and the railroad was a key participant in this. It would arrange for free or heavily subsidized travel to a lot of these fairs for orange growers, uh, would give different pieces of advice about how to best market or advertise products. So uh, without a lot of significant investment from the railroad, the citrus industry really wouldn't have become the advertising behemoth that it did by the 20th century when you see all these advertisements for Sunkist or uh, the citrus crate labels that are placed sort of on the sides of these orange boxes that get shipped across the country. So that um, the advent of these technological innovations, as well as the ideas of how to advertise, how to sort of invent modern capitalism made citrus so successful. There's there's a lot of books that I've read where you know lay scholars as well as you know degreed academics will come in and say yeah the California citrus industry sort of invented advertising as we know it, which is something that came along in the 20th century so it's a little bit past the Gilded Age but we can still see the roots of that as early as the 1880s. Yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting story and I think the the uh, Columbian Exposition in Chicago is a great example of that that. The it was a Tower of Lemons, wasn't it? Or was it, yeah? Oranges, but yes. Oranges, was, sorry, oranges, yeah. It's a, it's a great example of this, this marketing. Um, but, but all right, so let's move on to labor because these industries, naturally, labor is a big story, whether it's the railroads or whether it's, you know, uh, citrus growing or farming of, of any description. And it's also a story of migration as well. And there's a lot of excellent books on labor and migration in both of these in industries. Although I think less so probably in the citrus industry, of course, fruit pickers have a special place in American history books. But how important is migrant labor in Southern California to citrus cultivation and how do boosters play a part in promoting the place of Southern California? It's they're crucial um, without migratory labor, without um, immigrant labor, the citrus industry wouldn't have taken off. Uh, back in the 1870s, the first people to pick fruits who were not immigrants um, were indigenous peoples, actually. Uh, the descendants of the so-called Mission Indians who had to undergo Franciscan missionization. Uh, they were unfortunately afflicted by terrible disease, so their population took a severe hit by the late 19th century. But there were still enough of them that as Riverside was taking off, as Redlands was coming into being, they really formed the backbone of the labor force. And then by the 1870s, they were joined by the uh, Chinese. Um, and as many listeners will know, there was a large Chinese population in California, thanks to the gold rush. Uh, many of the Chinese did not strike it rich and ended up joining the railroad for relatively low wages, where they built the Southern Pacific and the Central Pacific. And many of them came to Southern California to build the railroad, and they stayed to take part in the citrus industry. Chinese workers had a really sterling reputation among grove owners, that they would work long, ridiculously hard hours. They would accept whatever pay without striking, which sort of earned them the enmity of their white competitors, white colleagues. 
the when the labor movement in California took off in the form of what was known as the Workingmen's Party of California, its slogan was the Chinese must go because they're driving wages down, because they're working so hard that working class white men simply couldn't get ahead, or at least that was their reasoning. Although actual analyses of the economic measurements reveal a different story. Um, some Chinese did take advantage of this interest industry to break into the middle class or even the wealthier class. Some of them owned groves of their own. Many of them would go from being laborers to being contractors to uh, pulling together communities of their countrymen to hire out their labor in the form of gang labor to different communities. So <clears throat> Chinese were absolutely indispensable. Um, the By the early 20th century, they're joined by the Japanese, who sort of had a similar reputation of accepting low wages, working incredibly hard. Um, these two communities, especially the Chinese, were well-practiced at citrus agriculture. China has been practicing the cultivation of oranges and lemons longer than just about anybody else on the planet. So they introduced new techniques, new irrigation methods to help the citrus industry in California take off. I would be remiss if I didn't mention what became the largest population of laborers in the citrus and in the railroad industry by the 20th century, which was Mexican and Mexican-American workers. California was, of course, part of Mexico uh, very briefly in the 1820s and to the 1840s, and so there was always a sizable Spanish-speaking population here. Uh, thanks to immigration, that was spurred by factors like the Mexican Revolution of the 1910s that population of Mexican and Mexican-American workers increased dramatically to the point that by the 1920s, really the entire California farm sector, not just oranges, but every crop that was grown here, really was dependent on um, transient Mexican-American labor. That is, people coming maybe into the Central Valley of California to harvest during the summer, during the fall, and then coming into Southern California to take part in the citrus industry uh, in the winter when the Washington Navels would come into bearing. Um, Mexican communities came wholesale to California. It wasn't just the men. Uh, wives, sisters, mothers would come as well, where they would not only take care of homes, but many of them would work in packing houses, too. They would take part in the citrus industry. And especially during World War II, when a lot of men were off fighting war and women were taking part in factory work, uh, Mexican-American women really stepped up in large numbers to take part in packing houses, to pack, to prepare fruit in Southern California to continue that supply going, which was particularly helpful because the army had a number of contracts with, with Sunkiss, the orange growers. So um, all these communities were pivotal to the growing of oranges and lemons. They laid the railroad tracks, ran the trains, especially during um, World War II when the so-called Braceros came from Mexico to um, take part in short-term contracts where they could work legally in the United States for a specified period of time. And yet they didn't receive a lot of gratitude for their work, unsurprisingly. A lot of advertisements, newspaper editorials, public opinion overall really looked sort of unfavorably on minorities, especially on uh, Asians and the Chinese in particular. People thought, oh, they're just too different. We have to segregate them in their own communities. They can't live with the rest of us. Mexican-Americans were forced to live on the opposite side of the railroad tracks from many different communities. So hence the phrase wrong side of the tracks, right, where um, minorities were segregated from some of the wealthy white folks who actually owned the orange groves or owned the railroads. There is some pretty virulently racist advertising to come out of this period. Uh, I think in the book I talk about some of the citrus crate labels that caricatured Asian Americans, um, Mexican Americans pretty gruesomely. 
um, accusing them of speaking pidgin English, making some fun of them for their skin tones or maybe their facial structures. So the very people who are making the citrus and railroad industry succeed are receiving pretty staunch vilification from the public that they're serving. So it's this odd dichotomy where really the octopus's garden would have fallen apart without Mexican, Chinese, or indigenous labor. And yet the press goes out of its way to say, oh, these are subversives. You know, Mexicans in the orange groves are trying to instate communism, or the Chinese are practicing opium and luring women into the sex trade. It, it's just, it was really harmful rhetoric that saturated much of Southern California society for years, even after the octopus's garden started to subside. And when we talk about boosterism too, you know, they're promoting this idea of paradise, but the paradise that they're promoting is a white one. It's oh, absolutely. You know, the, the migrants, all the migrants that you've talked about um, are not the migrants that, that the boosters are calling for. The boosters are looking for white settlers to come to California, to come to this paradise, ripe for colonization basically. And I mean, tell us about that story, because the booster story is a really interesting one in the book as well. Yeah. So the boosters, in addition to sort of vilifying the people of color, they very much were targeting people from the East Coast and from the Midwest to bring what money, what at farming they had to Southern California to take part in the citrus industry, to bring their expertise and especially their capital to make it take off. And as you mentioned, sort of California was portrayed as this paradise, particularly Southern California, which is pretty sunny for most of the year, which doesn't receive that much rainfall outside of a few months from like November to March. And so these the boosters, as the advertisers called themselves, uh, really dwelt on the fact that California was sort of this semi-Mediterranean. Maybe it's a new version of the Garden of Eden. They drew on a lot of biblical rhetoric saying, oh, the orange is nothing more than a golden apple. You know, it's just it's the modern forbidden fruit that you, too, can get rich <clears throat> by cultivating. There was also a tendency back in the 19th century to see California as sort of a large sanatorium, uh, a health resort where people could be sent who had lung problems, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, all kinds of health issues that supposedly the warm air of Southern California that wasn't clogged by some of the disgusting smog that you'd see in industrial cities back east would be able to recover their health, be able to benefit a little bit. Um, that was certainly something that Los Angeles took part in, Redlands, Riverside, all portrayed this idea that uh, not only do you need to come here to breathe the clean air, but you need to open up an orange grove. You need to be growing yourself these fruits that are supposedly healthy or good for you. Uh, for instance, when vitamin C was discovered, Sunkist was shouting from the rooftops, California oranges are the best source of this. So you can come here, you can eat this fruit, it can lengthen your life like it's some sort of like apple out of a fairy tale that's here to give you forbidden knowledge or increased powers. Um, but these advertisements uh, were very much targeted towards middle class and upper class white men, maybe retirees who had been bankers, doctors, lawyers, professionals in places like New York or New England uh, to try to get them to invest some of their money during their twilight years in opening orange groves or lemon groves in Southern California. And the railroad was an equal participant in this effort. They ran advertisements saying, oh, we're selling land that is very choice, that's proven to be useful in growing oranges and lemons out in places like the San Gabriel Valley or in Orange County or San Bernardino. They ran what were called special excursion trains where they would bring tourists who came into L.A. through the orange groves and say, oh, look at this nice place. Look at all these um, immense just forests of trees that are completely artificial. 
Don't you want to take part in that? Don't you want to invest your own money and buy a small acre of five or 10 acre property of orange groves in Southern California? So again, this partnership between the octopus and the garden really resulted in commercial expansion for Southern California. And that idea that California is a paradise very much took hold, was part of popular culture all the way, I would argue, until the Great Depression, even the post-war era, people streaming into California. And so we can really sort of lay that mythology at the foot of the railroad and citrus industries. Absolutely. I mean, to be fair, a five-acre investment in Orange County in the end of the 19th century would be a pretty amazing return on an investment if we're, you know, if we're talking in strict terms of of capitalism. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, and this is a bit unfair because I know your book only covers Southern California, but in in terms of comparison, Hawaii is beginning to to blow up as a place that is uh, not only a tropical paradise, but also a place where fruit cultivation is important. Florida is behind, but also coming up as well in, in that sort of field. How does California compare to these places or even internationally in terms of the citrus industry? And I suppose if listeners are thinking in a broader context, what else is going on in the world of the citrus industry beyond Southern California? So the biggest element that was on the radar of the citrus growers here in the Golden State was what's going on in Florida. Really, Florida, the Sunshine State, was sort of the heart of the citrus industry before California came along. And it was largely thanks to the excellent railroads that we had here, the multiple transcontinental routes that came to Southern California, that the Golden State was able to dislodge Florida from a lot of markets. Um, The weather here is also slightly better than what one would experience in Florida. California doesn't experience tropical storms or hurricanes the way that Florida often does during the hurricane season in the summer months. So that wealth and the or excuse me, that uh, natural landscape really allowed Southern California to gain a very large market share of places like the Midwest and the East Coast. Even though Florida was much closer, it you could get a railroad that allowed you to bring oranges from California much quicker, much more effectively than going all the way down to Florida. Um, on top of that, um, there was some competition with Italy, with the Mediterranean, which had been growing oranges. And so California very much tried to position itself as the Italy of the new world or as the Mediterranean of America, saying rather than, you know, importing and paying all these uh, taxes, tariff fees to have oranges shipped into our country internationally, wouldn't you rather buy locally? Wouldn't you rather buy cheaper oranges from Southern California, which is our own little Italy here in the United States? Uh, There were communities in Southern California that named themselves after Italian towns, Venice Beach, California, for instance, uh, building sort of models of the canal that one would see in that city in Italy. So California very much trying to sort of take the identity and in the process, take the market share of places like Italy and Florida. As far as I know, citrus wasn't a huge deal in Hawaii. I know Dole and pineapple were very much in commercial swing by the late 19th century. And of course, the sugar industry has um, a very strong connection in Hawaii. And actually, California sugar growers participated um, in that, hence CNH Sugar, which is still one of the big producers today, right? Uh, but really trying to keep up with and eventually surpassing Florida and the Mediterranean orange producers were the source commercial growth and um, the reason for existence of the Southern California citrus farms. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up 
uh, weather and the environment, because obviously in the book, the forces of labor and of capital, they naturally feature, but there is a third character here throughout the entire book, and that's the environment, whether it's the land, the temperature, the water, the topography, uh, and like capital and labor, it seems to kind of be forever changed by the confluence of the railroad and, and the, the citrus industry, as well as changing those industries as well. And I was just wondering, when you were doing your research, did you expect the environment to play as big of a part in the book as it did? I mean, I know you're from Southern California, um, and so I imagine it couldn't have been far from your mind, but you know, tell us a little bit about how the environment influenced the book itself. Well, as you mentioned, Southern California is sort of inescapably tied to the environment. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought it up because we're always mindful of the fact that we live in a pretty precarious place. Uh, we're very close to the San Andreas Fault, which was where the North American and Pacific tectonic plates come together. So we are earthquake country. <clears throat> we have a reputation for being stricken by drought periodically, which is absolutely true. California has historically had droughts that have lasted up to centuries, according to some scientific estimates. And yet at the same time, we've also suffered through some pretty devastating floods. Nature is really thoroughly unpredictable, more so in the Golden State than other parts of the U.S. And so I sort of knew going into this book that nature was going to have something to say about the citrus industry. And it sort of has this sort of love-hate relationship, if you will, with the orange growers and the railroaders, because a lot of Americans had this idea that resulted from centuries of conquest, from manifest destiny, that wherever Americans went, wherever they opened farms, built railroads, opened factories, created communities, they were sort of creating new value. They were fulfilling the mission that God had supposedly given them to improve the land, to make it productive, to show the rest of the world how to form a beneficial and economically prosperous community. And so people in California really had no compunctions about uh, tearing down mountains, forests, um, redirecting the flow of rivers and lakes, pumping water out of their aquifers to uh, feed the orange groves or to make sure that they had enough water for the boilers of steam locomotives. So if you take a look at the advertisements of Southern California, what was officially coming out of uh, newspapers or railroad brochures, they very much tried to advertise California as being sort of this natural paradise. But at the same time, they are responsible for sort of transforming it, for exploiting that landscape, for tearing down the trees that were already here and replacing them with oranges, which are not a native species. These you know, don't even come from the Western Hemisphere, much less uh, California. So <clears throat> as a result, nature is sort of being exploited, even while the people who live here are mindful of the fact that the next earthquake the next flood, even the next freeze could wipe out a year's crop. And it's, it's weird to think about California having freezes because, you know, we have a reputation for being sort of one of the warmer states today. And yet, if you were to go back into the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you'd see that there were a number of instances where entire orange crops would be wiped out one year because of low temperatures. And there were technologies that were invented to sort of deal with that, particularly different types of heaters that are put into the orange groves. Uh, but it does go to show that despite the advertisements, despite the best efforts that Californians had in reimagining and reconstructing that landscape, they're very much at the whims of nature as we are today, as we face droughts, floods, uh, unseasonable snowfalls. So nature is, isn't something that can be tamed in California. We can pretend otherwise as much as we want, but it can wipe away, flood out railroad tracks, um, use 
earthquakes to knock over entire orange groves. And those things have happened throughout our history. So we're very much at the whim of nature, which to me is, is one of the more relevant things that I try to broach in that book in this era of climate change when, you know, there's debates over the scientific merits of it. And yet we see increasing evidence of it across the world. Um, at some point, I think we sort of have to take notice and maybe modify our lifestyles in a way that people in Gilded Age California simply didn't because they thought they could get away with them. Well, and I think the other thing for me is for like really immersive history, you can't leave out the environment from the story and and from, you know, the the economics, the labor intensity, the, you know, all of that is tied up with the environment in your book, which makes it, for me, very immersive. The other thing that I really loved in the fourth chapter of you, your book, you explain how technology changed the citrus industry, but also you talk about spectacle and you talk about the orange show. And I, I know we mentioned that very briefly when we talked about 1893 and the Chicago exposition, but can you tell, can you retell the story of the orange show here for listeners who might, might not have read the book yet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for saying, yeah, I, I hope they're rushing out to their local libraries or Amazon to, to get a copy. Um, but basically, the National Orange Show originated in San Bernardino around 1911. Uh, San Bernardino is, is one of the large orange-growing cities in Southern California by the early 20th century. And the National Orange Show was this huge promotional venue where orange and lemon growers from across Southern California were invited to create these lavish exhibits to grow the best oranges. And they would make huge displays out of these, uh, using oranges and lemons to create railroad locomotives, to make uh, recreations of some of the different missions that were built by the Spanish in Southern California, uh, to make Liberty Bells, Statues of Liberty, other sort of patriotic accoutrements. And the Orange Show really was this annual thing that attracted a lot of attention. Newspapers were invited, photographers were brought in, and it was publicized on the national level to show people, here's what's going on in Southern California. We have this delicious, healthy fruit, and we grow it in such large quantities that we can afford to have this sort of tiny theme park built out of it. Um, there was a saying that went around in the orange industry around 1910 or so, which was, to aimed at Midwesterners in particular. And that was, I'll eat oranges for you if you throw snowballs for me back in the Midwest. Uh, because California, again, is this sunny paradise where oranges thrive. And it's not a place that's afflicted by snowfall the way you might be in Iowa or the Dakotas. So the Orange Show really was this way to like fix national attention on Southern California. It was just essentially a really large regional county fair that brought multiple places, multiple counties from Southern California together to sort of get the entire nation thinking about, oh, wow, look what they're doing over there. Maybe I should go take part in this. Or at the very least, I should go to my um, local gro grocery store or neighborhood market and buy oranges that are coming out of California. Yeah, absolutely. And so in line with like other, you know, regional, like the Detroit has an auto show or Chicago has right. a Pullman exhibition. You know, it, it's so in line with that, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's it also it's in line with, I think, the um, Rose Parade, something that happens in Southern California every year. You know, it's right on the first day of the year in the city of Pasadena, which grew oranges, by the way. We had uh, or we have every year this tournament of roses where huge parade floats show, you know, look at all the great flowers are growing in California and look how sunny and bright it is on the first day of the year when other regions of the country are bundling up and <laughs> blowing into their hands and setting fire. So yeah, it's very much meant to celebrate a local industry and it does fit into that broader pattern of, you know, other regions of the United States celebrating what it is that makes them unique or what they bring to the culture and the economy. California 
really took advantage of the orange industry to say, this is what makes us distinctly Californian, but also makes us an equal player in American economy, society, culture. So we're sort of unique, but we're also contributing to the greatness of the nation through that agricultural community. They really saw it as sort of a, a patriotic endeavor. So Ben, what then are the legacies of these industries today? I mean, you mentioned at the close of your book, the mural around Riverside, um, where there's a big orange featured. What's the national legacy of the citrus industry and the railroads from the Southern California uh, region? I think the, the national legacy is really this idea that Southern California, for good or for ill, is is a paradise, right? It's where all these different cultures sort of come together to live the American dream, even though we've talked about some of the dark side of that a little bit earlier in this podcast. It's supposedly a place where people can come regardless of their background, their wealth, their status, can <clears throat> participate in the orange industry, can sort of live the healthiest, best life and demonstrate to the rest of the United States sort of what it looks like to live in tandem with nature while also exploiting technology to live uh, a productive and modern lifestyle. To my mind, the citrus industry and railroads really fit into the broader pattern that Americans have of the country being a sort of city on, the, on a hill for the rest of the world to copy, right? We're offering an example for the rest of the world to show this is how things get done. This is how you build a productive society that's in line with nature and in line with God's design for the universe. And even after citrus and railroads started to decline, California really still maintained that reputation. You know, whether it was with the rise of Hollywood, the big tech industry, it's still sort of seen as the like cutting edge of American culture and society. I'm not trying to say that California single-handedly influences the rest of the nation and the rest of the world. But a lot of Californians probably would think that way, that we are sort of a national leader. Um, and that was certainly the case back when we were showing people how to practice industrialized agriculture, how to make it uh, ensconced in the culture and in the economy. That's a great answer. I, I forgot to ask one question before that. Um, and so in a way, I hope you don't mind me going back. But no, no, no. Because in your book, you talk about how the industry rises and falls after the 1920s. And I know the podcast generally deals with... Um, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about that period, maybe not up to the present day, but after the 1920s and what happens to the citrus industry. Yes. So really the citrus industry in, in SoCal reached its peak in the 1920s. That's when we reached maximum saturation of acres that were devoted to lemons and oranges. Even throughout the 1930s, despite the Great Depression, orange prices continued to rise. The supply was controlled so didn't gut the market and prices were able to remain steady despite the fact that the economy very famously laid an egg according to one newspaper. Um, it really was the coming of World War II that started to cause Southern California's citrus industry to decline with the influx of migrants from across the country coming to Southern California to build battleships, to build aircraft carriers and planes that were used to fight the war against Japan. <clears throat> Factories were being opened up. Uh, new housing developments were being built across the Octopus's Garden. And so a lot of developers um, bought out orange growers who realized, oh, I can make a lot of money selling my land. Maybe I'll uproot my trees and take them to the, the Central Valley of California where I can keep growing. But that really results in the landscape of Southern California becoming heavily 
industrialized and urbanized. It's not the uh, pastoral idol that a lot of Americans imagined as late as the 1920s and 1930s. So that it, it took years for all of the orange groves in Southern California to be torn up and removed. Uh, and we still do have some orange trees that you see in people's backyards every now and then, or a tiny grove in various cities here and there. But for the most part, the citrus industry in California is, is long gone from SoCal. It's up in the Central Valley now. So that that's a very sort of brief encapsulation of how the, the orange industry declined. And in the same years, the automobile industry is taking off, right? Um, there's all these new roads, the interstate highway system that's meant to service all these new expanding communities in places like Los Angeles County. And so as a result, railroad traffic is, is drying up to the point that by the 1990s, the Southern Pacific gets bought out by Union Pacific, its, it's former rival. And so um, railroads certainly are not the commercial force that they used to be in California. They're still here. They still do freight. We still have commuter lines, but California has adopted car culture wholesale. So very much our automobiles are much more precious to us than our trains are. So then is there anywhere that a visitor could go today to see the octopus's garden or is it, is it, is it past? There are a couple places. That's an excellent question. Um, probably my favorite place to relive the citrus industry is the California Citrus State Historic Park in Riverside, which I talk about a little bit in the conclusion of the book. Uh, this was created in the 1990s as a like 400 acre sort of recreation of what Riverside looked like a century ago. They primarily grow oranges, although there's an impressive crop of lemons, dragon fruits, Avocado, because we Californians simply cannot live without our avocado, as I'm sure a lot of listeners listeners know that the stereotype about us is true. I, I, um, I think the rest of the world can't live without a California avocado either. I mean, it's it's kind of caught yeah. on like wildfire. It is, yeah, exactly. From you know, avocado toast to California burritos, right? Everything seems to benefit from having avocado in it. Um, but you can go to the uh, California Citrus State Historic Park. You can take tours of the orange groves. And depending on what time of year you go, you might be able to go home with some free oranges or other citrus fruits. Uh, my hometown, Laverne, California, where I grew up, also has what's called Heritage Park. And they do sort of the same thing. They have about, I think it's like 10 or 15 acres of oranges where they still will sometimes um, have smudge pots to show how we kept the crops from freezing. They'll invite people in to come pick the oranges every now and then to show what a really difficult task that was for all the laborers back in, as late as the 1920s and 30s. So it's there are places you can go in Southern California where the orange industry still exists, but today it's much more of a novelty. It's more of a tourist attraction than it is a commercial driver. Today we're all about Hollywood. Um, big tech is a, is a large part of Southern California as well. The um, service industry is, of course, enormous, as it is in many parts of the United States, but oranges are still here, stubbornly refusing to sort of let go of what people see as Southern California's legacy. Well, you know, I know that the orange is on the Florida license plate, but in many ways, I feel like California needs to get an orange right on the back of its license plate as well. And Ben, the book is stupendous. It's really, really good. And I'm going to I'm going to use it in my teaching because I think it. it offers a cross-section on so many parts of America during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Thanks so much for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And yes, I would absolutely uh, love to hear what your students think and what listeners think about the Octopus's Garden as well. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. 
please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.